Hello and welcome. You are listening to the Health Disparities Podcast, a program of the Movement is Life Caucus. I'm Dr. Mary O'Connor, Chair of the Movement is Life Caucus and Professor of Orthopedics and Rehabilitation at the Yale School of Medicine. Health equity is my passion, and I'm delighted to host this very important podcast today in which we take a closer look at vaccines and vaccination through a health equity lens. Our guest is a distinguished expert in the field of vaccinations, Dr. Sandra Krauss Quinn. Dr. Quinn is Professor and Chair, Department of Family Science and Senior Associate Director at the Maryland Center for Health Equity and the University of Maryland School of Public Health. We also understand that Dr. Quinn is closely involved with the current Full Court Press to develop a safe and effective vaccine for COVID-19 in the shortest time possible. Welcome, Dr. Quinn. Thank you, Dr. Connor. I'm happy to be here. I'd like to talk about vaccines and underserved patients, particularly individuals of color. You have researched and written about lower vaccination rates in African Americans for all types of vaccines. For example, the flu vaccine. What are the factors which contribute to this lower rate of vaccination in the Black community? So thanks. It's a complex question, but but we do have some answers. And some of them rest with individuals in the in the Black community themselves. Some of them rest with our systems and uh, how we approach getting vaccine out. So let me first talk for a moment about African-American communities based on my research. And so we know a couple of things, and I'm going to focus a lot on flu vaccine, which is actually really pertinent today, you know, given the need for increased flu vaccine uptake. So consistently over time, if you look back year after year, African-Americans get vaccinated for the flu at lower rates than whites. Latinos also, as another group, get vaccinated at lower rates as well. And so there are a couple of things. We know that perceived risk of flu is important, but we also know that African-Americans are more likely to perceive the risk of side effects and think of them as serious. And if the risk of side effects goes up, that perceived risk, and I say perceived because Most side effects for the flu are quite mild, you know, a sore arm or feeling achy for a day or headachy. If the perceived risk both goes up and and it's thought of as serious, then the likelihood of getting a flu vaccine goes down. We also know that trust, and by that I mean trust in in the, the vaccine itself, trust in the process. We actually test it you know, to what extent people understood the process from the time the strains of the flu are are decided upon for the flu vaccine that year down to the provider that injects them in the arm. And what we found is African-Americans had lower trust in sort of everyone in that that pipeline from CDC, FDA, pharmaceutical company, healthcare organizations, 
down to providers. So trust is a really critical issue. But I think there are also a couple of other things we don't normally think about. And this is where the link to the system becomes important in the healthcare system. So what we did was we actually examined also people's experience of being an African-American in a healthcare setting. Did they perceive they were being treated fairly? How conscious were they of their race when they were in a healthcare provider's office? And whether they had been discriminated against? And so what we found was that if when their perception of racial fairness was high, they were more likely to trust the vaccine, more likely to take the vaccine. Now, imagine for a moment you're African-American, you're sitting in a provider's office, and everyone is white except you. So your consciousness of sort of your race, as it would be, Dr. O'Connor, for you or for me, you know, sitting in a provider's office that's predominantly people of color would be different. The higher consciousness of race, being conscious of being of race in the setting meant that it decreased trust in the vaccine. And it also increased perception of perceived side effects. So... Same thing, experiences of discrimination in the healthcare system. We weren't talking about, you know, overall society also made a difference in terms of trust in the vaccine and willingness to be vaccinated. But there are a few other things, and I just have to say this because I think this is something, there's something providers can do that makes a difference. And that is when we look at the literature what we find is that even when African-American patients come in during the season for a visit, they're less likely to receive a recommendation and an offer of the vaccine that day at the same visit. And, you know, what we know is when you get those things combined, you know, when you, Dr. O'Connor, say, you know, I strongly recommend that you take this vaccine, With your type 2 diabetes, you know, you're going to be at high risk for complications. We know side effects are mild and this is safe. I can give it to you today during this visit. So it's both community fears and distrust, but it's also some things on the provider side that they can do differently. Dr. Quinn, there's several several points that you made that I want to follow up mm-hmm. on. And just for our audience who's listening because they can't see us, uh, we are both Caucasian women, J- just for people to understand the context of, yes. your, of your comments. You. So the issue of African-American patients, and I'm assuming that it would be the same for Latina patients, Latinos going to the physician, to a healthcare provider's office and not receiving the same opportunity to have a vaccination that same day mm-hmm. is so disturbing. I mean, it's incredulous. I'm, I didn't know that. So, and I'm not, mm-hmm. I really shouldn't be surprised because I do a lot of, of, of reading and studying about health disparities, but this is such a basic system process. If someone comes in, 
why would it be more likely if your skin color is white that you're going to be given a recommendation and offered to get the vaccine that very same day at that moment, which of course would be more convenient for me as a patient. And I would be more likely, I'm assuming that you would, you would say from a research perspective, it's more likely that I would be vaccinated if it all happens in that moment, correct? That is correct. And, and so I think there are a couple things, Dr. O'Connor. And, and so I raise this just because, you know, we, there's a lot of literature that certainly documents ongoing bias in the healthcare system. And, you know, fortunately, I think healthcare organizations and medical schools and nursing schools are really starting to tackle that in a serious way. So, I mean, we know that often, you know, whites will get offered one standard of care for a condition, but but non-whites may be offered something different. So I think, you know, this is something that can be tackled and, and addressed. I think, you know, and I think why that's really important is that, you know, when any community doesn't, you know, doesn't take the flu vaccine as African-Americans have and, and other adult vaccinations as well, you know, we can't place it all on, on them and say, if they'd only learn to comply, we have to say, what do we have to do to help, number one, address concerns like vaccine side effects, address trust, and indeed to be more trustworthy, you know, so that people believe, yes, you know, you as my provider have my best interests at heart. And we know that, that you know, African-Americans and, and, and pretty much everyone, when you say who, who's, who's your biggest source, who do you trust most with your health, they say they're a doctor. Right. So I think for doctors, that's a position that, you know, they can use effectively, particularly if they're willing to talk, if they're willing to talk, you know, about questions about vaccine safety, questions about the side effects, if they're willing to also be a role model, you know, and I think this is, you know, I get vaccinated and I get my family vaccinated. Those are some of the things, particularly if the provider is African-American, to, to be able to say that's really useful. So from your research, is it more likely that a, a patient of color would be more willing to be vaccinated, to receive a vaccine, if they're in an environment where there are more individuals of color, whether that's patients in a waiting room or the provider? And is there a difference between if the provider is looks more like them in terms of race, ethnicity, or can other patients in the practice, so to speak, the patients in the waiting room, um, mitigate that? You know, if I'm a, a white physician, but I happen mm-hmm. to, to care for a lot of patients of, of various race and ethnicities, um, mm-hmm. does that help my patient's have a greater perception of fairness? So it's interesting you ask that, and it's a complex question. And I would say in some of my other research, you know, that we found that the, the race per se wasn't that important. What was important, we, we didn't ask the question in the context of the flu vaccine, but we did ask, as you said, about fairness and consciousness. 
I think what's most important is the ability to listen, to communicate, and to be a trusted provider for that patient. I don't think grace by itself will do it. Does it help? Yes, it's very likely to help. And when I, you know, I and I always do this little sort of informal interviews. I live in the Washington, D.C. area. When I go into my provider, my primary care, or even if I go in for another checkup at that time, and many of the nursing assistants, some of the physicians are African-American, I'll say, well, how are your patients doing? Are they taking the flu vaccine? The response is often no. And then every now and then I'll say, do you take the vaccine? And I'm surprised when I get a no. And because, you know, our own research also says norms about vaccination are important. And so the more people that are important to you, your doctor, your family, who you believe want you to get the vaccine, get the vaccine themselves, that's important. And that can increase vaccine uptake. I think that is an excellent point, Dr. Quinn. And as we look at um, people's um, acceptance of a vaccine, if the people in their communities that they know and respect are saying, yes, I received the flu vaccine, and we'll get into the COVID vaccine in a minute. I've received the flu vaccine, and I think everyone should too. Yes. Because because we know that even pre-COVID, you know, the flu kills people every year. And the people uh, that are at risk can be at risk because of someone in their household who's younger, who's going to get the flu, but not die from it or not get as sick, right? They can, they can get the virus from that household member. So it's really important because we are all essentially one family, one community that we're, we're trying to protect each other. And I think, you know, you hit the nail on the head. And we actually ask a question in our work about, you know, whether people have um, a moral obligation to take the vaccine to help protect others. And we found for our African-American respondents that was a predictor of taking the vaccine. And so I think for providers, you know, being able to say, you know, you've got a new baby in your household also has grandma living there and grandma has diabetes, you know, that that sense of collective um, concern for one's family is, is a value and for one's community is a value in many African-American communities. Let me just say African-American, when I say communities, we're not a monolith, just like there's no group that's a monolith and there are differences, but you know, there is a collective sense of concern for each other. And I think that is something that, you know, we can use in talking to patients. You know, this is not just about you. It's also about the people you love. As we've been talking about trust and distrust uh, with the system, has that been changing over time? Are there factors that contribute to trust that have changed, let's say, in the last 10 years? We could spend a lot of time talking about that. I think there are a couple of things happening. And in our qualitative work, when we ask people, when we were exploring trust, 
You know, many people brought up, you know, I'll, I'll never forget when the first focus group somebody said, and this was in 2014, I guess, said, you know, how can you talk about the flu vaccine without talking about the Tuskegee syphilis study? Fortunately, I've done a lot of work on the legacy of the Tuskegee study, so we got into it. And over time, what played out in some of these groups and interviews was certainly there's ongoing concern, you know, for those historical, really critical cultural sort of markers of research abuse by medical and public health researchers. That's still there. And and any provider, any researcher for vaccine clinical trials who's not ready to address that could be in trouble. On the other hand, you know, what we also heard from people was, you know, maybe it's time to set aside, you know, some of that distrust and kind of actively step out there. And what we heard and what we surmise when we listen to our white participants and then in separate group, our African-American participants, except for our African-American participants, it was often a much more sort of deliberative process. Am I going to make a decision to trust? So what has happened in our world in the last 10 years? <laughs> Certainly we've seen the advent of social media and I, I have a grant that studies that. It is a challenging world in terms of exacerbating um, conspiracy and myths and misinformation. But I'll also give you an example of something that I think is important. And that is a couple months ago, not long after we went on our stay-at-home orders in March in Maryland, one of the barbers, African-American barber that we work with, sent a, a photo um, to us of a flyer that was sort of stuck in the door of the barbershop. And the flyer went through black and white, you know, eight and a half by 11 piece of paper, nothing fancy. COVID is a hoax. Don't take the vaccine. It's caused by 5G. The vaccine will insert some sort of device to track you. Um, and don't be a guinea pig. And so I said all that to say, those fears have been there long before social media, but there it was in just plain old black and white, right? Um, you know, stuck in the door of the shop. So distrust is an issue. And we also found that African-Americans were more sensitive and concerned about the motives of government when it came to things like, you know, vaccine programs, not as much the competence, but the motives. So we can't divorce any of these things, particularly now, from the cultural and political and social context in which we operate. All of those things have an impact. You um, wrote a fascinating article uh, in 2018 about users of Twitter or Facebook mm-hmm. being more likely to receive vaccines. I just think that's fascinating. Why do you think that is? And, you know, as a any good research, I'm going to give you the caveats. That was a different world just five years ago than we're in right now. And so, you know, certainly, and, and I don't know if that would hold true today. I really don't. That said, what I do know from our social media research is this, is that the anti-vaccine movement on social media punches above its weight. 
it looks bigger, it looks more um, scary. It's not to say it's not scary, it is, but there are a lot of people who also are not going to refuse vaccines, but they just have questions. You know, that a good provider listening and engaging them can answer. Would it be true today? You know, I guess that's a testable hypothesis that it's really a complex world in terms of of the information, some of our COVID research looking at uh, what is perceived as misinformation in COVID. It's, the findings are really complex. So I think it's a testable and important hypothesis. Let's turn to COVID right now. Mm-hmm. And I'm interested in your thoughts on are there differences do you see fundamentally in terms of people's openness to taking the COVID vaccine versus, for example, the flu vaccine? Because we have a lot of experience with the flu vaccine. And of course, COVID is new and there's been, um, unfortunately, I think a lot of, uh, I'm looking for the right term, a lot of politics that may have been interjected uh, into what should be a very medical and scientific matter. I think our listeners would be very interested in your thoughts on is willingness uh, to get the COVID vaccine when we have one, do you see it as fundamentally different than willingness of people to have the flu vaccine? Well, that's a really interesting question. So I think first thing, one of the things we know from our research, because we ask about people taking flu vaccine not just the season we did the survey, but also for the previous five years. So we know, and we learned this also in our H1N1 pandemic work in 2009, 2010, that previously getting the flu vaccine predicts future, getting the flu vaccine. So if we look right now at, so, you know, African-Americans being high 30s, low 40s in terms of flu vaccine uptake for adults, you know, that's going to give us a clue. But I think there are a couple of other things here that are challenges for us. Number one, just what you said, the insertion of political um, rhetoric around the vaccine has been an enormous challenge. Um, the conversation of uh, the, the term Operation Warp Speed because most of the public, not just African-Americans, but most of the public really doesn't know much about the vaccine clinical trial, the research and development process, they'd have no reason to. So I think the Operation Warp Speed somehow was interpreted by many as this is taking shortcuts. And, you know, yet when you look at these trials and the protocols, it's it's not taking shortcuts. It's, it's doing more collapsing so the trials you know, our um, phase one and phase two trials, for example, are done, you know, almost simultaneously. As soon as they've got strong data to suggest safety, then they may move to the next trial. But so I think the politicalization, the operation warp speed, I think there's one more piece that is going to um, be an issue for us. That is that one of the options is that these um, vaccine companies could request an emergency use authorization, which is a different mechanism than a standard flu vaccine 
approval process, biologics license approval. It is really allows you to request approval based on data doesn't require the completion of the study, which is most of these are 18 to 24 month studies. And it's done because it can only be used in emergencies. We're in a, a, a desperate emergency, right? But I think that that terminology and often the language we use around things like that will also potentially sow further distrust or skepticism. So I think we've got some challenges ahead of us that are not insignificant. One of the things I'm happy to see is that I think many of these companies are stepping up and saying, here's our process you know, letting other scientists look at this and and sort of interpret it for the public, reporting on what's happening. And I think those things will help, but we're going, this is going to be a huge problem. Sometimes I've thought about this, this challenge and in my own mind thought about what would motivate people that might be resistant to the vaccine to consider getting it. And I'm making the assumption that we have a safe vaccine. Okay? Yes. And, and one thing that I thought might be helpful would be to get some patients who have been sick, the so-called long haulers, right? Patients who continue to have symptoms of illness months and months yes. after the acute phase because there's so much about this virus that we don't understand. And these patients may suffer for years, or maybe they're going to suffer their entire lives. We just don't know. Mm -hmm. And if their infection could have been prevented, and they could be messengers to the larger public to say, it's really important that you don't get sick. This is what happened to me. And whether that would be effective at, at showing people the other side of this disease. It is not just the flu. It is not just the flu. So I, I welcome your thoughts on, I mean, if you were the queen of the universe and you could create a public service campaign that would, that would help engage patients in being vaccinated once we have a safe and effective vaccine, and in particular, engage our communities of color or and communities that are the traditionally underutilized vaccinations, what would you do? Even today, in the context of vaccine trials, we're seeing some prominent and often just regular people, African-Americans, stepping forward and saying, I'm volunteering for this trial. And that's critically important. Your point, I think, about you know, having messengers that come from communities, being able to say, here's my experience. You don't want to go there. You don't want to have this experience. And you can prevent it. I think it's going to be essential. And I think that's part of why, you know, local health departments, healthcare systems have got to be reaching out to community organizations, to faith communities, to federally qualified health centers, to local media, you know, black radio stations or Latinx, and begin to talk to them about the, the vaccine, 
also to have some of those very people that you're talking about, you know, whether they, I mean, I know people who had mild disease in March and in October still have symptoms. They were not hospitalized. They were not suffering severe disease, but they are not back at work because they still have symptoms, young people. So I think that's vitally important. I also think that, you know, what the country has done, and rightly so, is invest in enormous sums in this because we need this to save lives and begin to recover whatever the new normal will look like. That said, what we have not invested in is the social and behavioral science research to really help build the communication strategies test those strategies, because ideally it doesn't start the day one of these vaccines is improved. It starts now. These are different platforms. They are, have different dosages. It's a complex picture we're facing, and we're going to have to explain that to everyone and why some are two vaccines and some are one vac- vaccines, and what does it mean if you get one of vaccine A and one of vaccine B, we have a lot to share with the public. And I don't think we wait until it's ready for you at Yale or for us at Maryland to start giving it out. No, no, I agree. And, uh, you know, the other thing I thought about is the tremendous loss of life. So it's not just people having residual symptoms. It's the loss of our loved ones people who have suffered that loss reaching out to say, you can help prevent this happening in your family. You can get the vaccine and have less, dramatically less risk of becoming ill. Yeah. And I'm, I'm almost concerned that, you know, we're, we're just getting fatigued from the pandemic and we are now seeing lower death rates because quite honestly, we in the medical community know how to take care of these patients better now. Yes. And, there are, and there are other treatments that have come out. And so yeah. we are seeing a lower mortality rate, but we still have patients dying of this, of this illness. And, and we still have, have individuals, as you just mentioned, suffering longer term consequences. Yes. So it truly is a, a public health crisis for us. Um, it absolutely is. And, and I think your point, Dr. O'Connor, is well taken because, you know, you may remember the start of the HIV and AIDS crisis. And one of the things that really made a difference in beginning to turn around HIV infections, particularly among men who had sex with men, was they were seeing their loved ones die. They were seeing their friends die. And it was, these were horrific deaths. Um, And, you know, I don't think we're hearing some of the stories from families as much as we need to hear. And I think those are vitally important. The other thing is for African-Americans, you know, there's also for many people, they're working in front facing positions. They may be in the hospital, they may be a provider, they may be in the housekeeping staff, they may be in the cafeteria, they may be the receptionist in the ER. Um, 
you know, as well as in other workplaces where they don't have the luxury of working at home. And so I think recognizing that risk and the horrific consequences we've seen, you know, is just something we need to be talking about more and more with people. Um, we've kind of gotten caught a lot in talking about fatigue and political debates on on the, the steps we need to take to mitigate our risk um, and not talking about this is having long-term effects on families, you know, affecting them for their whole lives. Absolutely. You know, I wonder if the way that patients have died in this pandemic uh, because isolated from their families and in general, the social isolation that we're going through in this pandemic is part of the reason why we're not understanding this loss better. And this general kind of isolation that we're feeling, I'm interested in whether you believe, I don't know if there's any data on this, but whether you believe that further fuels people's sense of, I don't need the vaccine, I'm I'm kind of isolated, whether that contributes to people being resistant to having the vaccine. I, I think the whole country's kind of a little on the depressed side. So if if we look at that and say we're all tired of the pandemic and and you know, um I haven't been I haven't been out to a restaurant to have a fine meal since March. Right. And so the, my quality of life is different now. And I shouldn't. I say that flippantly, and I know that there are far greater issues than whether Absolutely. my husband and I go to a restaurant to have dinner. Absolutely. But nonetheless, there, there just is a time, for example, on a weekend evening when normally we would go out to dinner that, that I, I recognize that I miss it. And so yeah. I wonder if this kind of global sense of, of loss, if you think that's going to impact people's willingness to have a vaccine. Yes, I think there is, you know, a part of this where many of us around the country are, you know, sort of low level of depression and, and certainly anxiety. I think for many of the people who have suffered far more than you and me because they've lost jobs and all that, I mean, for them, it's an enormous crisis. But we're all experiencing this. And I do think that sometimes the sort of, um, for some people, because we don't have a unified message that says to the American public, much as we've seen presidents like President Roosevelt during the Depression say, we are in this for the long haul. This is going to be difficult. This is going to be painful. And I feel for you and, and we need to look out for each other. So acknowledging to everyone, this is going to be really hard. You know, just like he had to do during the Depression and at the start of World War II. This is going to be hard. We're asking sacrifices of you. And I know it will be hard. And being empathetic. We have not had that on a large scale and I do think right now we need to hear some of the people saying to us, we know this is tough. We know you, you know, it's hard what we're asking you to do to by and large, stay home, wear your mask, get a vaccine that you're a little anxious, you know, that you're anxious about. On the other hand, 
this is what we're going to have to do collectively. I'm going to do it with you. We're going to do this together. We know some of us are at greater risk and have suffered more, you know, more than others. And we're also going to be here to support them. So I think there's not just the scientific part of this, the emotional part of it. There's also, I think, the need for sort of a public front-facing, we can do this together, mask and vaccines and looking out for each other are the ways we're going to do it. Even if we had these vaccines tomorrow, as, as you well know, as a, as a physician, they will be a scarce medical resource. We won't have enough for ourselves, much less the world. Initially, it will take time. But the other thing is that we will have priority groups based on who's at risk. And I think many of us would say those people out in the hospital providing that care, whether they're cleaning the room or literally providing the care, we got to get them vaccinated. They have to be protected. But we're going to have to help the people understand that and, you know, in order to help them be patient and then have those early people be speaking about, I got it. I had the confidence to get it. I'm still wearing my mask because we're still going to have to do those things. Absolutely. I know. Um, I received a, a upsetting call today. So my husband's cousin, who is an ICU nurse, uh, has just contracted COVID. Mm. And it's, and, you know, I'm praying for her and, you know, she's young and strong and healthy. And so she should recover, but mm. it's still scary. And, you know, when I go in and um, take care of COVID patients who have hip fractures, because in my world, um, we're not doing elective surgeries on patients who have COVID, but obviously we're doing emergency surgeries on patients who have COVID. And uh, so that's primarily people Mm -hmm. in an accident or people who break their hip. My family has a lot of angst about me getting sick of course, when I go in to take care of them. Um, And I know that I I have my faith. I'm not concerned about me. Um, But but it is still an issue uh, about the people that are caring for other people and and how we are all in this together. And we are all linked together. And that is one thing that I really hope we will learn or have a deeper appreciation of in this pandemic is how much impact each of us have on each other and that how much we can support each other when we have a safe and effective vaccine and we all get vaccinated. Yes. And I think, you know, we are all in this together and yet we always have to remember we don't have the same, the same risk of exposure and the same risk of bad outcomes. And so, you know, being able to support people, be they African-American or Latinx or are um, out in our native communities, you know, who don't have the resources to stay home if they're exposed. You know, we need to, to say, this is important. It's important for these families and it's important for all of us if we make sure people have what they need. Dr. Quinn, I just want to ask you if you have any closing thoughts or closing comments for our listeners today. 
This is, you know, as I said, this is going to be the long haul. This is not going to be over tomorrow or next month or the beginning of 2021. And so I think so I think it's a call to a couple of things. It is a call to our common humanity. It is a call for us to, to rededicate ourselves to health equity and addressing the disparities that put so many people at risk. And I also think it is a call because we know enough now about this disease for, for all of us who can to be cognizant and devoted to improving our health aside from COVID. So being physically active, reducing weight if we can, taking care of our mental health, and, and really, you know, um, doing the self-care and management necessary if we have any of these chronic diseases. This is a wake-up call that we need to be doing those things whether we ever catch COVID or not for our own, our own health long-term. So those are some of the thoughts, you know, that I'll leave you with. And I really appreciate the conversation. Dr. Quinn, thank you so much. And I particularly appreciate your comment at the end because uh, this is the Movement is Life Health Disparity Podcast. And of course, we um, are passionate about the importance of movement uh, to health. And the healthier you are, the less likely you are to get sick. And we are passionate about the importance of movement to health and particularly uh, the importance of movement in health equity. Um, so I do thank you for that. Um, I want to thank our listeners for joining us today. Remember, you can find and subscribe to the podcast on leading platforms such as iTunes. So everyone, please stay safe, stay well, and join us again soon. Until then, goodbye.